Hi, I'm Rene Chouinard. I uh, won a uh, Human Rights Tribunal really to keep uh, Gideon Bibles out of your public school. I listen to apostasy now and find out why. Wait a minute. Why should I believe a talking brain? Welcome back to another episode of Apostasy Now. Over the next little while, we're going to be dropping in some guests mixed with some material from the Imagine No Religion 7 conference, or secular retreat as Bill likes to call it, that happened in Toronto. Some interesting stuff there. Today's guest is Karen Gartz. She's written a book that compiles interesting information from different women of different faith backgrounds and the struggles and difficulties that they went through and the perspectives they have from each of their own unique experiences. I, uh, I like Karen. I thought our talk was good. I hope you enjoy it. And hopefully we'll be able to pick up the pace a little bit, uh, bringing out new episodes. Thanks for coming back. Welcome back to Apostasy Now. Go in peace, my daughter. And remember that in the world of ordinary mortals, you're a wonder woman. I will make you proud of me. Because I'm very much a skeptic, more I'm, I'm more of a skeptic than I am an atheist. I mean, atheist is a conclusion based on my skepticism. So you'd be better if you were straight? Yes. Wow. Anybody so would be. That attitude is what is responsible for the rise of atheism. That's not what Islam is all about. Islam is peace. What is the penalty for leaving the Muslim faith? With a death penalty. Thank you. For people to get the information correct before they start yap, yap, yapping. Get ready to root for the bad guys. Resisting while you still can, and before the right to complain is taken away from you, which will be the next thing. Well, where you're at looks a lot nicer than where I'm at. I'm in our extra TV room today. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is my forever home in Silverton, Oregon, in my office. So, so I'm never moving again. So 150 books, do you mean like you had a project and so you read 150 and you're going to... No, I read them because when I started writing the book, um, I wanted to know more about religion. And right. I, I had gone to a private college, uh, Lutheran college, and I had read a lot of the Jesus Seminar stuff. But I wrote about religion and mythology and atheism. And um, I developed a slide presentation called From Goddess to God, Elimination of the Feminine Divine. So I read all the things that women had written about the Paleolithic and Neolithic and stuff like that. Right. So I'm wow. a dog with a bone. When I take on something, <laughs> I like take it on. <laughs> well, that's the way to do it. That's the best way to do it. Well, and I did summaries of all those books. And then I did a summary of the summary because when you're an old fart, you can't remember anything. So I thought if I did a video of each of them, like 10 takeaways, then I would remember even more. Yeah. yeah. So that's well, what I'm going to do. That's one of the things I found my, my profession now is a, as a truck driver, but I, I have the comparison of when I was in university, I used to have to, I had to read something and then do something with the material. I had to write it out or yeah. make a presentation. And I still remember a lot of the information from university. And now I have to really struggle to make sure I recall all the information because I'm not using it anymore, right? I'm just learning it and then yeah. moving on. The best thing is teaching. I taught French for seven years when I was working on my PhD, and I will remember it forever. Yeah. I mean, it is it's part of me because I taught it. I lived there, but I taught it. And so you just do it over and over and over again. But, you know, you're not going to spend seven years learning early Israelite history. You know? right. <laughs> so anyway. Most of us won't. Well, I know, us I know groups like the Jesus Seminar, I, I'm, I'm not an expert on them, but I find the stuff I, I learn about them very, really fascinating. Oh, I, I, it's amazing. It's really amazing what they've done. I like, um, in fact, I attribute to my atheism to uh, Bishop John Shelby Spong's Resurrection Myth of Reality. Um, I was clinging to the resurrection, and I read that 400-page book and said, okay. 
And that was yeah. it for me. Well, I remember my, well, my background's Christian too. Uh, so <laughs> I remember as a truck driver, I already started kind of moving away from Christianity as a, an Orthodox thing when I went to university. So I became what I called a hippie Christian. Ah. <laughs> And the first time, it's not the most solid work, actually. Um, I think it was called The Pagan Christ was the name of the book. Um, but it was the first time the author had presented to me point blank the idea that maybe Jesus wasn't a real person. Maybe oh, that's, maybe yeah. that actually gets in the way of what you can get from this story. And that was where it really hit me for the first time. And from there, it just became more and more, yeah. uh, made more and more sense to let go of all the kind of ideas that this stuff is real history. Uh, and so it started becoming less actually obscene because now if they're telling me that they're going to commit genocide in a story, at least I can go, well, odds are it didn't really even happen. It was meant to okay. try and, yeah, convey a point or something. Jericho was destroyed long before the Canaanites got there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, my favorite was uh, in the Old Testament is where God actually is throwing stones at people. It's not just that he tells them to kill everybody. He actually comes down to throw stones at them. <laughs> it's it's too much. Um, now, if you really want to learn about whether Jesus was real or not, you can read Richard Carrier's 800-page book. Yeah, well, I haven't read it, but I've heard a lot of glowing uh, reports about yeah. it. He's he's a scholar. He said, I met him in Seattle and he said, yeah, I'm one of five people who don't think Christ was real. <laughs> <laughs> we, well, we had Robert M. Price on here. Uh, but Robert we, Price's is very good. Yeah. I think his is one of the best books. It's much it's it's much less academic than Richard's is. Yeah, well, but Robert has uh, only good things to say about Richard's work. Oh, yeah. But I'm. it's just um, Robert's is a little easier to read. Yeah, he, I'm impressed you had Robert Price. He's... Yeah. <laughs> I'm same, boy, I'm on the same video as Robert Price. <laughs> we only had his audio, um, and like I said, it was about three years ago. And actually what I, we found is he's, since we put him onto YouTube, uh, we're, like we're just slowly uh, putting all the audio up as YouTube with a picture of the guest on the background. Mm -hmm. And his has gone way beyond everyone else's. And I think oh, what... I think I think what happened was in the discussion we were talking to him, a guy like Robert, he's so good at what he does. People see him as very specialized. So when he's invited to speak somewhere, they want him to speak about that thing. Mm -hmm. And when he was on, we asked him about his views more about life, philosophy, and even politics. Oh. And I think now his followers, as they catch on to that, they all are going to this this uh, interview from three years ago and listening to what he has to say about stuff he normally doesn't talk about. <laughs> yeah, and they Google the name. And that's what I started out with, just Googling atheism and right, watched right. a lot of the videos when I when I started. Yeah, that's a, not my tail. That's the cat. Yeah. yeah. Just so you know. Hi, hi Kat. How you doing? How are you? So, uh, um, I'm sorry about the what's, holidays. What's our, our timeline? Uh, well, usually I shoot for an hour minimum and then, like, just like as a basic. Okay. Minimum. Like we've, we've had less. It's no one, uh, no one can tell me what to do, so I, I can <laughs> do whatever I like. I love it. I love it. Okay. But if, if we for some reason get into an interesting conversation, we can go longer. It's, uh. Okay. Just so I know. That's right. perfect. Um, I was going to say, I'm sorry about the holidays. I was kind of, uh, my, I, my brain didn't have much energy. There was just so much no, kind of going on. No, I, I um, have a spreadsheet. How many times I've contacted people and no. I'm just contacting them. <laughs> yeah. Well, You're going to go now. You're going to go from pink, which was, we're scheduled to purple. We've done it. Yay. So gonna... <laughs> Purple's a great color. All right. Purple's Yay. A great color. My yeah. <laughs> okay. So. Um, let's start out with, okay, so, uh, you, we've talked a little bit about it. I have, I have your book. I haven't gotten all the way through it. Um, but, uh, for anyone who's going to listen to this and is unfamiliar with your work, um, let's start with what got you interested in it. And then we'll move into some of the, the things you found yeah, out. Yeah, I've got, I've got quotes here. I can do some quotes and stuff. Sure. Yeah. So what got, what, what piqued your interest? What made you, uh, uh, decide to set out on this path of, of gathering all this, uh, all these stories? Well, in, uh, 2014, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States issued its decision in Burwell v. Hobby Lobby. Yep. And they built on a previous decision called Citizens United, where the court had decided that a corporation really is a person. Oh, yep. a corporation is a person. So once it's a person, then a corporation can have religious views. 
So uh, Hobby Lobby, which is a craft store, privately owned, and they uh, really objected to Obamacare. And I think they thought, they and their followers thought this was the case that was going to overturn Obamacare. Well, it didn't overturn Obamacare, but the five uh, out of the nine justices on the Supreme Court, all men, all Catholic, <laughs> just by coincidence, of course. Coincidence, all coincidence. Uh, <laughs> yes, decided that they didn't have to provide certain forms of birth control, like the morning after pill and things like that. And a couple days after that decision was issued, I was having lunch with a friend of mine who's an author. She's a Pacific Northwest mystery writer. And she said, Karen, you should write a book. And I said, the only thing I can get really excited about or passionate about is the role religion is playing that it shouldn't play. And I decided to write a book. I decided to write essays and have people tell their stories of living religion, including me. I started out with friends. And then I branched out to different atheist organizations in Portland and Oregon. And then I went out to social media to get a little more diversity. So the women are from 18 to 70. They come from all different walks of life. Uh, some were born in Europe. Some were born in South America. And they tell their stories of leaving religion. Early on, someone introduced me to Dr. Peter Bogosian, who's the author of A Manual for Creating Atheists. Yeah, and he yeah. worked with Richard Dawkins to create the Atheos app which is how you should talk appropriately to people who are religious without <laughs> pissing them off. Right. And it's, a, it's a great app. It's like $4 or something. And he has really been my mentor in the last two years. He's introduced me to everybody. He's just been amazing. I um, He loves sushi, so I ply him with sushi lunches, and then he gives me <laughs> <laughs> advice. But, you know, he helped me get Richard Dawkins' blurb. He introduced me to Pitchstone Publishing. So he's just been amazing. So that's why I always uh, mention him, his book, and his um, new app, Atheos, when I'm uh, being interviewed. Yeah. Pay, pay him back. <laughs> I like his work. I, I listened to his audiobook version. and oh, uh, And when I was done, I reviewed it, which you don't have to do. And it gives the option you can put on to, your, your review goes on to Twitter. Like it says, I finished this book. And he responded to it. And he's just like, hey, yeah, I'm he glad. Yeah, he's like, I'm glad you like my book. And uh I've got an app. Just check it out. I was like, that's very personable, you know? <laughs> yeah. I don't get nearly the number he does, but when I, you know, it makes my day. If I hear from one of my subscribers to my blog, um, and I have a blog because uh, I early on decided I need help in marketing. So I hired a marketing guy and he said, you got to do all this stuff, you know, social media, et cetera. And I got a Twitter account, a Facebook page, and we were talking about names. And he suggested Godless Grandmother. And I said, you know, let's not emphasize the grandmother part of my age. <laughs> so he came up with Faithless Feminist. And yeah. so my Facebook page is Faithless Feminist. My blog is www.faithlessfeminist.com. And, um, but what I was surprised about was the pushback on this word feminist and how it has changed from the 60s yeah. and 70s where I learned the word become a lot of division around that absolutely yeah. and it's kind of like let's take back the word uh, yeah. all it means to me is gender equality that's it yeah and and uh there was an episode uh, we've we've had discussions about it too from the different sides that are kind of raging about it there was one episode um and again this goes back over a year ago that i had three different people i know who are at least at the time we're all podcasters <laughs> and all self-identified feminists to talk about because i was like you know this is an example of three feminists i know who are very uh, um they, they have their stuff together you know like you don't have to worry that they're going to suddenly surprise you with a, a strange political belief or something mm -hmm. and like you say it was these guys were all about the reason i choose this title is because not because women are superior but because women have a slightly different experience that sometimes it's important to address, you know, within society. So, yeah, I, you don't have to tell me. I know that there's a swirl, especially in our community, right? There's a swirling yes. energy around the term. Yeah, I've watched several and I won't mention their names, but it's, you know, it's real interesting. And I have one of the authors of my book uh, in her essay states that she's not a feminist. Because she thinks that, you know, it's tipped a little and there are some issues where men are really disadvantaged. And, you know, I, I don't disagree with that. But uh, I think if you ask any woman, what's your experience been, they could cite issues. Uh, I was um, at a Lutheran college for my undergraduate work and I decided to go to grad school. And I was interviewed by a committee and it was a scholarship to Dartmouth. And one of the women on the committee, I think it was the only woman on the committee, said, why should we give it to you? You'll just get married and have kids. Really? <laughs> yes. It was 1972, and I didn't get the scholarship, not surprisingly. Wow. Uh, 
But I've had I've had more recent examples. I was the executive director of the Oregon State Bar, and we had a subsidiary organization that had its separate board, but we were all bar employees. And that person had like 40 employees, and I had 90. And I had a much broader set of programs. Well, the person left, and they hired somebody new. And I went to my board. I told them what you know, all the salaries of my managers, where this person would fit in appropriately. And they hired the person at thirty thousand dollars more than I was making. And wow. I went, okay, that's not okay. Yeah, that's, <laughs> and that's, uh, oh, I went to my board and said, unacceptable. And one of the women lawyers on the board said, if you want to file a lawsuit, I'll help you. And what they ended up doing was hiring a consultant who did a study of the two jobs and, you know, concluded that I had more responsibility. I got a $30,000 raise. Well, at least it ended happy after you stood up for yourself. Absolutely. But, you know, and that was in the last 10 years. So people who say women are equal, they don't have any problems in the workplace. It's simply not true. Um, Early on in my career, I was a union representative. And I I had a woman come to me. I will never forget this. I had done a... I think a workshop on sexual harassment and things like that. And she, she said, I, I need my job. I can't file a grievance. My boss is ha- harassing me, but I, I just can't move forward. And I, I'll remember that to this day um, because she couldn't, she couldn't take the risk of, of jeopardizing it. The law was on her side. Our contract was on her side. But yeah. if anything yeah. happened, that was the income for her family. So she just she tolerated it and put up with it. Now, well, that, was, that was quite some time ago. I, I tried to... We're all human, but I try to always deal with the person in front of me by the way they're comporting themselves. So um, it's like you just said, women have issues. If it, it, the way you're talking to me right now, one human being to another, and you know, this is this is the way that meaningful communication happens, right? So there are times we get upset because someone's doing something. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I'm human. I've gotten upset at people. <laughs> well, but, and I uh, think there are issues. There. Oh, you go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that, you know, you've said that there are situations where men can come forward and say they have certain uh, concerns in society. So, um, you know, one of the ones that we were just talking about, I think yesterday in my family here, was that I find it, I know that there are people who are in the business who've actually defended it, that that are waitresses. But I think it's insane that we still pay less than minimum wage to waitresses, right? And this is uh, primarily women who do it. And I've watched them do it. I mean, some places are easier than others, but it looks like a thankless job. So we are joined by Karen Garst. Karen uh, is the author of Women Beyond Belief, Discovering Life Without Religion. Karen, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's the pleasure is mine. So Karen, uh, this book is a, a collection of stories uh, that you not only contributed to, but you also edited. Um, what made you decide to sort of collect these stories and, and, and make this book? A couple of years ago, uh, you might remember that the United States Supreme Court issued a decision in Burwell v. Hobby Lobby. And because of the previous decision in Citizens United where they decided that, oh, yeah, corporations are people. That's good, yeah. So in this decision (laughs) – Did they they get all Canadian on it when they did it? Oh, that's good, yeah. (laughs) I know. I know. I might say out and about because I'm up here too. (laughs) A store, a corporation, privately held called Hobby Lobby. It's a craft store like Michael's or other things. And they petitioned the court, filed a lawsuit that said under the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, they did not believe because of their religious views that they should have to provide certain forms of birth control that are really uh, abortifacts or abortifacients, however you say that funny word. And what was interesting, I heard the other day was they had been providing these forms of birth control under their previous insurance. So it might have been, you know, a broader idea of attacking right. Obamacare itself. Yeah. It's just a test case to go after the broader bill, right? Exactly. Yeah. And the court, uh, five to four decision, that would be the five Catholic men in the affirmative, decided that, well, let's see, a corporation is a person and a person has a right to religious views. So, yeah, I guess. I think uh, there's one more step in their, in their logic process. And a person that matters is a man. So, right, therefore. Exactly. <laughs> you know, there was uh, no problem with uh, other forms of things that <clears throat> uh, are available to men. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And so the court agreed That's with true. them yeah. and said they didn't have to provide it. Now, fortunately for the women employees, that was provided through a, a separate government program when Hobby Lobby didn't have to. 
So as long as, uh, you know, somebody uh, brings that point up on a human level, I'll respond to it. I think most people still are on that level. It's just become, there's just a fight that's kind of outside, really, of the issues that's that's taken over the conversation in many quarters. Well, and I think there's one issue, child custody and yeah. shared parenting, that has changed dramatically in the last 20 years. Because men never used to get sole custody. Men didn't usually get joint custody. The woman got the kids. So... Um, uh, for your viewers, that's Oreo in the background who's just jumped <laughs> on my chair. My cat loves to participate in these podcasts. She really thinks that's cool to be to be on video. Um, so there, um, there, there are changes being made. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the real imbalances is uh, politically not to have more uh, female representation. Now, I live in Oregon, which has, I think, the highest number of women senators and representatives in the country. Um, I belong to this group and somebody was talking about they've gone back to D.C. and everyone was going, oh, how do you do that? You know, we have a woman governor and uh, a lot of representatives and that's that's unusual. And I think that's one area where obviously we need to work. We didn't get a woman president. Um, I just wrote an article um, that Cleopatra was pharaoh uh, 2,000 years ago, <laughs> and she was actually not the first pharaoh that was a woman. That was about 1800 BCE, and oh, really? we still don't have a woman president. So, you know, um, when Trump got elected, I said, well, you got to look at the bright side. So my two bright side things were, I don't have to change my slide presentation where I say we don't have a woman president. Didn't need to do that. <laughs> and the other one is, it's probably good for my book. Um, but, uh, <laughs> That's you fine about, silver lining, right? <laughs> yeah. You ask about the book. The name of it is, uh, women beyond belief, discovering life without religion. And it's yeah. available in Kindle nook. And I believe coho is the one you have. Is that what you have in Canada? Um, it's an electronic version, or maybe it's the UK. I just, it, I, bought, I bought it from Amazon. <laughs> oh, okay. Great. Um, and there's going to be an audio version. It just hasn't come out yet. Well, that's so, great. Yes. As a, I'm a truck driver, so I love, uh, so I'll, I'm going to read it once uh, through myself, and then when the audio comes out, I'll probably grab that, and I'll listen to it again in my truck. Great. Well, I was really impressed with the women telling their stories. Some of them are, you know, get out your Kleenex. Um, yeah. One of the women uh, in the first in the first essay, she was raised in an evangelical Christian home and had a very uh, domineering father. And she said she developed this debilitating perfectionism that she was so worried about sinning that everything she did, did I do this right? Can I read this book? Can I go to this movie? Should I have done that? Um, that affected her her entire life. And she said she was taught that um, you don't just commit sin, you are sin. Right. And she called me a few months ago from the beach, and she said that she had um, she had an epiphany. She was out there, she was thinking about herself, and she said, I felt good about myself for the first time, and she's in her 50s, or late 40s. And she said, I think writing the essay helped. So it was really rewarding to me to provide a platform where somebody could, yeah. could process yeah. that. Um, and uh, I, let, me just, let me just read, since we're sure. talking about her, let me just read an excerpt. She said... The problem is my mind, my heart, and my will were the fundamental tools I needed for knowing myself, for connecting with other humans, for making wise choices, for having empathy and showing compassion, for setting clear boundaries, for living a whole and satisfying life. But when my religion demanded that I believe things that were irrational, mythical, or contrary to human decency, it had to undermine or destroy these fundamental tools. What else could they have done? If they hadn't bent my mind, I might have wondered why there are such an amazing number of things in the Bible that make no sense. If they hadn't suppressed my feelings, I might have decided that human compassion is more important than obedience to dogma, and I might have rebelled at being commanded to love a being who sent billions of people to hell. Yeah. So I think... Uh, you know, there are there are examples of that throughout the book of women really struggling to come to the realization that they're good, you know, and they, yeah. can, they can do good things. And like you said, be human, be compassionate. Um, and uh, it's um, I think, you know, I often say when I'm interviewed that people need models. Um, I remember growing up and never seeing a woman science teacher or a scientist or an archaeologist. And 
I, I know my parents would have been real supportive if I tried to do one of those things, but it never occurred to me because you don't see anybody that. So you just, I mean, all the women I saw were teachers or secretaries or nurses. So pick one. Um, <laughs> and there are people who break away from them old, but they're usually the minority who right. do that. Um, now today, I remember when I was director of the bar, um, there weren't a lot of women lawyers in the 70s. And now they're more than half of law schools and veterinarians because it's really switched from, you know, cattle and bulls and stuff like that to <laughs> dogs and cats. Right. Um, you walk into a veterinarian clinic and most of the veterinarians are women. So the, the, they change over time. But I think it's difficult. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. I wanted women to say she can do it. I can do it. Um, she had it right. worse than I did, or I have it worse than she did, but if she can do it, I'll keep struggling. Um, and I did a podcast the other day for Recovering from Religion, which yep. is an organization that kind of helps people um, through through that path. And yeah. for some yeah. people, it's very, very difficult. You know, I was an adult, married. My husband was a lapsed Catholic. He always went out the back door when his mom took him to church. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but for some people, you know, there's another author in my book who, um, she has a pseudonym because of her family knew the, um, denomination that she belongs to her cousins could have nothing more to do with her. Yeah. So there's I, some severe consequences. Uh, my, my background is, uh, well, my grandparents were more old colony Mennonite, but, uh, so my parents' generation was more of a modern evangelical Mennonite. So there were improvements. And the way I like to say it is my parents made some improvements. I just made more. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. And, uh, so one of the things I am very aware of is that men and women, and especially in religious circles are treated differently. So they have their own pressures, but I think it's definitely worth listening to what um, you know, especially as guys, it's worth listening to what women have to say about what their experiences were like. You know, it's going to be interesting as I go through it to compare it to my own because yeah. Yeah, like the expectations for me were things like obviously it was expected that I was going to be head of a household and this sort of thing. And those carry their own weight. Um, but, you know, I have a sister. I knew lots of women uh, growing up who were under the same pressure as me to conform to these bizarre ideas. Yeah, and it's a lot about it's a lot about the culture. Yeah. Uh, I think it's kind of interesting. I did my uh, PhD dissertation on a French sociologist called Pierre Bourdieu, and it was about cultural reproduction. And I keep going back and looking at that um, because he created this world called habitus, this word called habitus, to describe all of the things that go into influencing you, whether it's your race, whether it's your country of origin, whether it's your language. Uh, whether it's your economic status, did you grow up in a two-parent home, right. what were the influences in the community, all of those things create who you are. It's not just one thing. Right. But yeah. I believe that religion is the last cultural barrier to gender equality. I don't think we'll fully get there with religion. And I think if you saw the uh, U.S. presidential election, you saw the role religion played and who was supporting Trump. And if that religion hadn't been there, if those teachings hadn't been there, if the anti-choice, anti-reproductive rights for women component wouldn't have been there, I think there would have been a significantly different result. And if you look at countries that are less religious, like Iceland and Sweden and Norway and Germany, they've all had women leaders. And I think Iceland may rank at the very, almost the very top in terms of gender equality. So those two things go hand in hand. And I don't think we're going to get to where Iceland is today with a very religious population, which is what we have in the United States. Yeah. Well, it should be interesting, too, in those countries that we look to that are so secular. Um, I, but it's been pointed out, uh, and I think there's a truth to this. It was after World War II that that really started for Europe because I think that they were just tired of the destruction. And becoming secular mm -hmm. was a way to really coexist far more peacefully. Um, so it should be interesting to see as they have a larger and larger influx of people with a religious, like a strong religious culture, how that's going to affect their voting blocks and uh, in their future. Exactly. Uh, will, they, will they cool those heads and they'll become more secular? Or will this now interfere with their progress? It'll be, it'll be interesting. Well, and they're uh, accepting um, immigrants from Arab countries that are at the polar opposite of secular. Right. So they're not kind of, I always call myself a Namby, I was a Namby Pamby Lutheran. You know, it was, uh, <laughs> you know, it wasn't that, it wasn't anything like being raised in an evangelical household. Um, so you take somebody from, you know, a culture where that is, there's no separation of church and state and it's, it's everything together. You've got a lot more difficult time adjusting 
if you come into a country that's that's very secular. Yeah. And I, I used to live in France, and a lot of people who came from the French colonies, whether Tunisia, Algeria, etc., places like that, um, were really separate. You know, it's kind of like the African Americans in the United States. They were segregated, they were concentrated in certain areas, they weren't, you know, they were looked down in. Um, I had an instance once when I was living in France, and a friend of mine said, well, don't go to the laundromat. I said, what do you mean don't go to the laundromat? You want me to wash my clothes by hand? <laughs> she said, oh, yeah, don't don't go. And then, you know, I washed my clothes by hand once and said, forget this. I'm going to the laundromat. <laughs> well, most of the women in the laundromat, because they didn't have their own washers and dryers, were immigrants. And a lot of them were these type of people from former French colonies. It was the cleanest laundromat I have ever been in my life. The women washed out and wiped out the washing machines when they were done. So the only thing that you can attribute that woman's comment to, my friend's comment to, was racism. Yeah. You know, those are the people who went there, so don't go there. And of course, I spent the rest of my six months going to the laundromat. <laughs> oh. So it's... Um, well, your friend's loss. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's kind of, it, it's sad to see that, but... Yeah. A lot of countries um, just can't integrate people who are different. And I think we saw that again during during the campaign. The put down of Hispanics, the put down of African Americans, the put down of immigrants. It's like you said earlier, we're all human. Yeah. Well, integration, all, integra integration was the, the, the thing I think that created the real legacy for Martin Luther King Jr., why he still uh, resonates around the world today, not just in the United States, is two, well, two things. One is he understood integration was key towards people treating each other as humans. If, if, there's a, uh, if you grow up with mostly people that are like you and the other people are, are in another neighborhood, then as you, if you only really start interacting with them as an adult, then you'll have um, these inborn genetic kind of fears that you'll need to get over. But if you grow up around them, then your genetic kind of makeup will accept them as part of your tribe, right? Absolutely. And then as you go and meet other people you don't know who bear those traits, you'll have less of, a, of that kind of response. Well, my um, brother, who's now passed away, um, he, I, I wouldn't say he was homophobic, but he would you know, tell jokes and stuff like that. And I introduced him when he moved out to Oregon to a friend of mine who's gay. And ever after that, he never said a word against gays because that was Craig then. That had a personal face. He knew yeah. who it was. And I was in D.C. recently, and I loved the diversity. I mean, I loved walking down that street and seeing people who were different. Yeah. You know, it's such a better mosaic, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's too bad that Oregon doesn't have um, as much diversity, and you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of segregation here too that dates, you know, what from the Civil War in the United States after the Civil War, the federal troops went to the South, but then there was an agreement that they'd leave, and so we had Jim Crow, we had segregation. Yeah. I mean, really, until the Civil Rights Act, Martin Luther King, and even today, there's still a lot of segregated neighborhoods. Um, so we've got we've got a ways to go um, in integrating our community. But I think it's, you know, when you have a lot of different people, you, you just hear different things. You think differently. Yep. You react differently. You learn. You learn about people who are different. But if, like you said, if they're living in another neighborhood down on the other side of the tracks, you don't interact with them. Right. Well, it's, it's, it's one of the beautiful things about children is they learn and adapt to their environment so well. The older we get, the more, you know, kind of stuck and, and we want things to be the way they were when we were kids. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The other thing that he did that was, uh, I think, really key to his legacy, Dr. King, was uh, nonviolence and the amount of discipline yeah. he... It, I, I've watched a couple of videos of him talking to uh, journalists about how much focus he had on getting everyone ready before every single uh, march that they did. Even the children, they would give them lessons on how to respond or not respond if their parents were going to bring them along. Mm -hmm. And I think we've kind of lost the idea that it's work to protest. <laughs> yeah. My generation, anyways. <laughs> well, I'm excited about the enthusiasm for the Women's March on January 21st. The major one is going to be in Washington, D.C., um, but there's going to be a big one in Portland. In fact, I learned yesterday that the state capitol, which is a much smaller city, is also going to organize its march. And in a couple of days, they had like 300 views on their Facebook page. So I'm really excited about going up to Portland and, and marching in that. 
Um, and, you know, we, uh, we need to keep doing that. We need to keep active. And I think you're right about Martin Luther King. Keep it peaceful. Yes, as soon as you as soon as you uh, resort to to that frustration and violence, that's that's when a state like a, a state that's powerful, they always have what they call organized violence, right? Mm-hmm. That's always at the disposal. One of the things that a state knows how to do is respond to violence with violence. What they exactly. usually what they usually don't know what to do about is when you're nonviolent but still active because they're not sure how to stop you. <laughs> oh yeah, and there was this image. Um... I think it was during, it was in, I can't remember where it was, but there's this woman uh, standing up to these cops with all their shields, their guns and everything. She has nothing in her hands and she's just looking at them. And I think you're right. They go, well, what do we do with this? We can't probably hit her. She's not doing anything. Right. Uh, But that's so powerful to be able to say, I'm against this. I'm against what's happening. I'm just going to stand here peacefully and tell you that. So I'm sure we'll have speeches and different yeah. things in uh, in the march, and I'll look forward to later seeing uh, what happens in Washington D.C. But um, I think it's really going to be exciting, and we have to speak out. It's like speaking out against the uh, you know destruction of the environment or anything else. You don't get anything by not being active. You well, cannot sit in your house and bemoan everything that's happening without taking a stand and doing something. The upcoming book, Women Beyond Belief, Discovering Life Without Religion, collects the deconversion stories of 22 atheist and agnostic women and offers us a bounty of insights from the feminine perspective. To talk more about it, I'm joined by the book's editor, Karen Garst. Karen, welcome to The Scathing Atheist. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Oh, you bet. And I have to say, when I first learned about this book, I was really excited. I've kind of been waiting for somebody to put together a collection like this for quite some time. So before we get to all the questions and whatnot, I just want to thank you for the effort. You're welcome. Now, uh, since this book is largely a book about women shedding religion, I want to start with you. What what brings you to atheism? Were you uh, religious growing up? Well, um, I was born in Bismarck, North Dakota, and uh, so that answers most of that yeah, question. Right. <laughs> um, I think that everybody I knew going to school, I knew every church they went to. I knew who was Catholic. I knew the five uh, Jewish families in town and which uh, Lutheran church they went to if they were Lutheran. Uh, I was raised as a Lutheran, and I often say that I would have had no social life in high school without Luther League. <laughs> so I have a lot of friends who see themselves identifying with the political left. I don't, I, I don't identify with either side, <laughs> uh, except on issues. I will take sides on, on issues. So there are things I'm worried about, obviously, that they talk about, like uh, women's reproduction rights, all this kind of stuff that's that's been going on. I thought we had this settled. <laughs> Me too. Um, so uh, w- when it comes to this, uh, finding a silver lining, what I've tried to tell them is that, well, okay, so this one's been lost, but now's the time for renewal, right? All the things you think are most important to bring yeah. to the top on the left, now's your chance to say, these are the most important issues. Well, and I don't think millennials today, they're not going to stand for going back and not having birth control. No. Uh, that's not, that's not going to happen. They may not be active yet, and they may not have taken a stand, and they may not have donated to Planned Parenthood or whatever, but they will. We're, I, I don't think, I think there will be a very strong reaction if something happens. But I read the other day that Congress in the United States has the ability to remove birth control coverage from Obamacare uh, without changing the plan per se. Oh, really? And, yeah, it would be if they do that. Um, I think they're running into a lot of uh, roadblocks. Uh, uh, Donald Trump, president-elect, said, we're going to get rid of Obamacare. And now people are doing things. One representative, I think it was Tennessee, uh, just put something on Twitter. And 84% of the people, her constituents, responded, said, don't get rid of Obamacare. They're going to have <laughs> problems when they've got constituents who are covered by health care to say, Here's my situation. I'm in the middle of chemotherapy. You're gonna you're gonna stop that. Right. Um, I was just diagnosed with X. Do I have to worry? I'm never gonna get help with that. Uh, I it's gonna be real surprising. I think they may be at the point where they're not gonna get rid of it without trying to do something else. They may not be there yet, but I think um, uh, they're gonna hear a lot. I've seen. Uh, several Republican legislators in the United States uh, Senate and Congress say we need to have something in place first. And they spent six years trying to come up with something and haven't. (laughs) Um, Like Canada, I lived in Europe where there was universal health care coverage. 
And I had a job. It came out of my paycheck. I went um, to a doctor. I didn't have to, I don't even think there were co-pays if I remember correctly. And you didn't have to worry about it. And that's the way it should be. Yeah. Uh, that, to me, universal health care coverage is a human right. Do we really want people to have cancer and not be treated? Can you really say that's okay? I, I think that the one thing that I've uh, come up with, though, that's really important is for a major program like that, the government should always declare up front what percentage of your taxes are going to it. And then it's very easy for the population to check in on whether that money is going there with the particular government in charge. Uh, but yeah, universal healthcare. I used to go to the States uh, over the road a lot more than I do now. I spent uh, over three quarters of my life there for a better part of a decade. And this debate would come up sometimes with people. And I would say, look, I'll tell you this. While I'm in the States, away from my family, I know that if something happens to my wife or to my daughter uh, or any family member, any friend I have, they can go to the hospital and get the best treatment we have. Right? That there's problems with it like anywhere else. No system is perfect. But they're not going to have to have someone go, well, where is your insurance papers? Or we're going to have to send you down the road or whatever. <laughs> well, and there's some things in Obamacare that reduce costs because if you mandate coverage... Then you've got the healthy people who are paying into the system, and it offsets the people who do have a lot of problems. And instead of everyone going to an emergency room visit, which is very expensive, maybe they'll see a doctor early on and catch it early on. So there are, I think, a lot of elements there that will bring, in some aspects, the cost down. Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll see what happens with that one. Stay tuned. Yeah, we'll cross our fingers. Yes. <laughs> but did you want to, to uh, talk a little bit more about maybe a couple of the other uh, people that contributed to your book? Sure. Um, this one is this one is kind of interesting. Uh, let me read. Let me read it, and then I'll talk to you about it. Okay. Uh, this woman is before a tribunal of three elders in um, the Jehovah's Witness Church. And it's because of her boyfriend that she started to go out with who wasn't Joe's witness. And one of the elders says to her, you must consider him a tool of Satan. <laughs> my face refused to remain neutral as my ears took in the sentence. Did I hear him right? With an expression of incredulity and confusion, I look back at the elder who had just spoken and two others on the panel with him and replied, I don't see how that's possible. I don't think you understand. I love him. This isn't a crush. I love him. I wouldn't be with just anybody. Jehovah is a God of love, and this is love. So I don't see how that is even remotely connected to Satan. Satan is using him to draw you away from Jehovah and is disguising himself as this boy. Another elder chime in. Oh, silly young seal. You hadn't realized that you'd fallen in love with the devil. And she goes on to say when she walked out of that meeting, that was kind of it for her. Um, that that's when she really lost her faith because uh, she knew that her relationship with this young man was love. And they were trying to tell her it wasn't just because he wasn't a Jehovah's Witness. And that's when that's when she was done. That's when she had her epiphany and her eyes open and Good. said, this, this is not a religion I want to be a part of. And uh, she married him and they have two cute little kids. <laughs> so it was a great ending. Yeah, I remember the expression... Um was that I heard was don't be unequally yoked with the non-believer out of the Bible. Oh, interesting. I, well, I remember I remember this expression not just because of when they said it to me, just basically say you can't vote, you can't vote, you can't date people who aren't of the same faith. But because I always thought of breakfast when they'd say don't be unequally yoked. <laughs> oh, that's funny, Abe. Well, one of the things that I've done um, a lot of reading are on is the time before the period in the Bible. And most scholars would say, you know, the Israelites, maybe 1200 BCE, maybe 1500, but, you know, around 1200 BCE. Well, when they were in this land of Canaan, there uh, were other gods being worshipped. Right. And Baal, El. Now, isn't it interesting that El was one of the gods that was worshipped and Elohim is the word for God, one of the words for God in the Old Testament? Yep. Yep. Think about that. And one of the, um, they also worship a goddess called Asherah. And you will see throughout the Bible uh, references to Asherah. They were more trying to put down Baal, I think. Yeah. yeah. But there are some interesting little pieces that show that Yahweh may have been had um, a female consort and oh, really? it may have been this Asherah that they may have taken 
Yahweh from El and that Asherah was part of that. But you will see there's a passage in Jeremiah where the women are before the temple and said, you know, it was much better when we sh- we were worshiping the queen of heaven, uh, which is Anath, which I believe is Asherah's mother. Um, you know, we baked her cakes uh, for her. We did incense for her and we were we had good crops. Now look what's happening. You're telling us to abandon her and things were good then. And so you see throughout um, the Old Testament trying to get rid of the goddess, trying to get rid of these yeah. others. And uh, Karen Armstrong, who's a, a religious scholar, said it, it probably took 600 years to firmly implant this monotheism. And what's interesting is other cultures were doing the same thing. There is a Babylonian myth called Enuma Elish. And in that myth, Marduk, who's one of the bros, yeah. you know, he's one of the male gods. <laughs> <laughs> hey, dudes, you know, I'll tell you, you make me head God, and I'll get rid of this uh, uh, serpent, uh, Tiamat, who's the female. Yes. And they go, okay, dude, yeah, right, you be the head God, that's cool with us. And he chops Tiamat into pieces. Yep. And of course, there's an allusion in the Bible to Leviathan and the sea monster. I mean, it's it's very similar. But the Israelites were exiled in Babylon when... Um, the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, conquered them, and they took the scribes and the, you know, the head people over because yep. they figure if we took the head people over, then there wouldn't be fights, and of course there were, and they went back and destroyed the temple. But you know, they're sitting there with their scrolls, going, "Okay, we're God's chosen people. What happened? We lost." <laughs> and then they see the people who conquered them had this single male god. You know, that's the way to go. And so Karen Armstrong maintains that when they left Babylon. They were firmly implanted in the male deity. And one of the presentations I do talks about what it was when there was a goddess in the pantheon. What were the different cultural memes that were present with a goddess and how did those get destroyed? And you follow that through. And in the early um, Christianity, there's this, you know, put down of women. I mean, if you read St. Augustine or Tertullian, I mean, they're terrible. Um, but the Catholic Church still had to acknowledge this female representation. Yep. And they did it through the adoration of the Virgin Mary. They did it through female saints. They would take a uh, Regamund was, the grain, uh, was a saint that was modeled after the grain goddess. It was the same story. They just took it and put a female saint on it and said, oh, you like that pagan story? Great. We'll change it. Put a different name on it. And then Martin Luther came along and, you know, he railed against the... Uh, the uh, Catholic Church and what they were doing with money and all of that kind of stuff. But he also got rid of all the female saints and the Virgin Mary and everything. And so it was even more sterilized male, if you will. And he's reported to have said, well, if a woman dies in childbirth, no big deal. That was her job anyway. And the child lived. Um, (laughs) And Calvin, they're very misogynistic. So it, it, Oh, Calvin was even worse. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Calvin was terrible. He was a he was a psychopath. I I convinced he was a psychopath. Well, I think it was a much stricter society than under the Catholic Church. Oh yes. Well, did you know? Okay, so my uh, my old minister that I had um, since I was I don't know about ten until I left you know to go to university and basically started moving away from the church. So he's my minister for a long time. We had a very uh, friendship oriented relationship, really. Uh, But he was a Calvinist, Mm. and only after like a few years after I got to university did I actually look into who this Calvin guy was because um, I had heard in in history class when I was in university I had had a couple history classes, and the guy the teacher did not bring it up to bash on Calvin, but the things that he said about him did not match at all what my minister had said about this guy. He said he had suffered in Christ with illnesses, right? And then I found out the guy was a drinker and he was with, you know, prostitutes and that these were the diseases that came from that. I was like, well, <laughs> that doesn't count as saintly suffering, right? But then as I looked into it, uh, sure enough, it was even worse. The stuff like uh, if there was a uh, alleged, uh, they were convinced, that it was a city council. Uh, what was the name of the city he lived in? It's basically a city state. Um, somewhere in Geneva, around Geneva, maybe. Uh, yeah, I think so. But they were they would listen to whatever he said. So to this day, his defenders say he didn't make any of the rules, but when he would say it, they would do it automatically. Yeah. And so if if they were caught having uh, an affair, the man would be I, I think he would be uh, just hung something like that. But the woman would be tied into a sack and then drowned in the river with the town watching, held under the water and drowned in the sack. Yeah. This and I and I said uh, there's a few Christians that are in my family that, are, that were still in this church and I said to them, "Do you know who this 
Calvin guy is, and I would explain this stuff to them. And they were shocked. Like they, I could tell they were having trouble believing me. And I'm like, this is well recorded. You know, there was a, a there was another minister that came that he didn't like, right? But this minister who was a reformist, I forget his name. He came to the city to watch one of Calvin's sermons. He knew he wouldn't agree with it, but he was curious what exactly he was saying. Instead, I guess just believing reports. Calvin recognized him, had him seized, and burned alive in the name of the loving Lord. I'm sure. <laughs> Well, I was I was raised as a Lutheran, and of course, uh, you know, I memorized Luther's catechism, and I somebody gave it to me a few years ago. I said, no wonder I didn't remember him. I didn't understand any of it now because it was all you know dogma and stuff like that. Um, but a Luther wrote a book on uh, or a treatise on Jews and their lives, and uh, if you look back at that uh, and the influence that had wow. in Germany, yeah. It, one of the contributions, it, it's again, it goes back to that cultural reproduction. You know, you start out with preaching the Jews are bad, they should be run out of town, etc. And then you come to World War II and you have generations and generations who've been taught that. Now, obviously, by the time I went to church after World War II, they weren't going to bring that up. But you look back, whether it's at Calvin or Luther, etc., and they were they were terrible. And I often say that, you know, for women, it was all downhill after agriculture. Because <laughs> what happened is... Um, you know, your hunter gathers your tribes, you move around, you're never in one place. Well, you start to do agriculture or you start to do herding and you stay in one place and you start to own property. Then you want to pass that property onto your son. The men do. Right. Yeah. So they have to be sure that uh, the woman they marry is not pregnant, that she's a virgin, um, and that she doesn't commit adultery during the marriage. Otherwise, you're not really passing it to your bloodline. Yeah. And then you get this centralization and the men are the ones who own the property and they're the ones who have the, you know, start to make the temple. And like I said, it was all from yeah. there in terms of in terms of women's rights. And the men look at Solomon. What Solomon had 200 wives or something like that. But the women, oh no, you can't, you can't do that, mm -hmm. and that has really um, influenced the role of women today. Um, Karen Garst has a PhD in curriculum and instruction from the University of Wisconsin Madison, a master's degree in French literature from the same, and a BA in French from Concordia College in Moorhead, Minnesota. She has served as a field representative for the Oregon Federation of Teachers the executive director of the Oregon Community College Association and executive director of the Oregon State Bar. She is married and lives in Salem, Oregon and is a lot of fun when she gets a couple glasses of wine in her. Karen Garst. I'm very pleased to be here. I want to first thank Lisa and Oliver uh, for the two glasses of wine she just mentioned. <laughs> Um, they were gracious enough to host me last night, and Paul came over, and we just had a delightful time. It was more fun. Uh, so what I would like to do, before I give the presentation from goddess to god, I would like to tell you a little bit how a little girl from Bismarck ended up signing books out there. That... Uh, Women are dirty, women are unclean, women are different. Whereas you look back at the goddess, can you imagine what it was like in Paleolithic times um, for people to realize that they started to know what the cycles of the moon were and women had their period in conjunction with the cycles of the moon. I mean, that had to be pretty yeah. cool. Um, I'm not sure exactly how they <laughs> matched up, but um, well, it, I, is, it, it, it must have been freaking them out to go, she has her period once a month and the moon goes around once a month. Whoa, what's happening here? So I, I study a number of things, uh, but my, my focus in university was theater. And so, of course, the, the we were introduced to the ancient Greek plays. And you see in there, um, it, I guess my perspective is that it shifts over time. And you can see the stages if you study history, either from an artistic point of view, a literary point of view. Uh, just events like military history, you can you can see that the change happens in stages. With mm -hmm. the Greeks, you still had, uh, and even at the Roman times, like well into the Roman times, these uh, very Greek-oriented, uh, um, women-centered, um, they're not festivals, uh, mysteries, is I believe what they were called. So they had like the inner circle where secret things happened. 
in these traditions, and they were to the goddess, right? And, and it's not that they wouldn't allow men to see these things, but even they had, there's two different Caesars who actually said in their own writings, like their private correspondence, that the things that they saw there, they were worried that if they, they spoke because of the secrecy that they promised, that they'd be in trouble. But then, yeah, and, and I, I think you look back, Greek, um, you know, Greek society was very male dominated, but at least they had a symbol. At right. least they had right. these mysteries. At least they had places to go where there were women, uh, priestesses, uh, you yeah. know, yeah. oracles, different things like uh, that. Uh, there uh, was Athena, a presence. Athena was their their uh, Athens central like figure for their city. Yeah. Well, and the oracles at Delphi, yeah. you know, the, before battle, they would go there. So there was at least some recognition of women. And then Christianity comes along and gets rid of the... Uh, the whole thing. I, I think one of the most tragic things that's ever happened is um, the destruction of the library in Alexandria um, to and and Hypatia of Alexandria, who was one of the leading, if not only, <laughs> female mathematician, brilliant, teaching. And they kill her and they scrape her skin off with clamshells Jeez. and they destroy the library. They destroy learning because all you need is the Bible. If we would have progressed from Greek knowledge forward, where would we be today? You know, would we be on another planet? Look at what happened to our our quest for knowledge. It really wasn't until the Enlightenment where we started to, you know, to say, well, science is valid. Well, I I know that I've had this. There's a disagreement about the role of the uh, rise of the, I guess today what we call the Catholic Church, but originally it was just the church mm -hmm. uh, and the fall of um, it wasn't really secular Roman um, Roman Empire, but it was more secular than what followed. <laughs> you know, festivals then they made their they were community oriented, and though there were people in charge, they basically they got money from their how much the, the community appreciated them. So wealthy people would give them money, government people would give them money, but it was because they played a role. The community would be upset if they lost this festival or this. Uh, what what the uh, rise of the monotheism or the church did was it mimicked government function. So it was the first one mm. to actually have a tax system, which mm. today, which today is not as strict, but at the time it was strict. And then they had an entire bureaucracy and they had territories that mimicked government territories that were laid out by a, an emperor, a Roman emperor. So they, they were mimicking government function. And that's why a couple of the emperors were really nervous about these guys as they started spreading through the empire. And then of mm. course, when, when they started collapsing as an empire, these, uh, sort of these uh, secondary uh, governments, that's why they rose in power. They were yeah. set to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that that had a lot to do with the collapse of the Roman Empire, but some people disagree with that. Mm -hmm. Well, I I would, um, I wish the Greeks would have won. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think eventually we would have gotten to equality long before we will today. But wishful thinking. Yeah. The, it'd be nice to see the, have a machine that could show you the, the hypothetical, like how it would play out if it had been different. Um, there's a really good, I'll do another plug here, um, The Kafir Project. Have you heard of that? No. It's a, it's a novel by Lee Burvine, and it's a pseudonym. <laughs> and in this novel, the government has found a way to go back in time with video cameras. So you, do, you don't go back in time, but you get to see back in time. And the premise is that it reveals who really wrote the Quran. Ergo, the pseudonym that he's writing under, but it's a great novel. Yeah. Um, and there's another one called Mythos Christos by Edwin Herbert that uh, it's a fiction, of course, that Hypatia left a trail to the early books that predated the New Testament. And she's got all these little puzzles that you have to solve on the way. So this guy today goes and solves these puzzles and finds these books. And, uh, you know, in the last two years, I've been reading so much nonfiction. I permitted myself these two atheist <laughs> nonfiction books, but they're both really good. And they kind of answer that question, what if? You know, yeah. what if we could go back and say, what really happened? Yeah. I mean, it's, well, it's, it's fascinating. Um, I made a song uh, when I had Robert Price on. I actually made a musical uh, song. What I sometimes do is I'll take someone like Robert, I'll put them to music. So... I took two sections of a debate he was having uh, about theology, and then the, the last section is him talking about his personal philosophy. Uh, I don't know. The music style probably isn't for everyone, but I love the beginning is, is one of his opponents he's about to debate with goes, I told the guys at the Institute that I shouldn't be having a debate with you. I should be, I should be teaching a course on you. <laughs> that was the opponent he was about to argue with saying that about yeah. him. Yeah.
Yeah, that's great. <laughs> and uh, well, one of the things that he, he does is he, he he takes these types of uh, uh, arguments that they have, where they say, well, you know, the reason that secular historians don't talk about God the way that we do is because they have this naturalistic axe to grind, right? And he goes, that is a complete projection. They make it sound like historians have something they have to prove, but really they don't. That's what the theologians are trying to do. Historians know they can't go back in time and say, hey, A happened, not B. We know for sure. All they can say as a historian is, this is what the evidence seems to indicate. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I don't think they like arguing with him. (laughs) He is a very, very smart person. And he has done, he's a scholar. I mean, he's done the research. He's thought about it. Um, I I think it's interesting when I was in... um, ninth grade, we had a class on evolution, and it was back in the 60s, and there was no creationism, there was no intelligent design, there was no um, somebody leaving the classroom or anything like that, it was just normal, and my church didn't say, I mean, evolution was fine, and then you come along with this intelligent design and creationism, and it's, you know, it's got a foothold in a group, and to me, it's just it's phenomenal that people believe it. Um, Abby Hafer wrote a book. She's a biology professor, and she wrote a book, The Not-So-Intelligent Designer. <laughs> and she goes through all the parts of the body and goes, yeah, you wouldn't have put that there, or um, why right. didn't we get that instead? Or, you know, and as a woman who's given birth, uh, you know, the pain stuff could have uh, yeah. you know, been eliminated. But, well, uh, but but I think according to the Bible, that was done. That's, he, that's a punishment, right? Oh, it's absolutely now you're going to suffer because I'm a loving God. And... <laughs> and all you have to do is is read the first chapter of Genesis to see what, you know, what happened with women. Um, and I think part of that is there were symbols of the goddess that they included in that story to put the goddess down. For a long time, goddesses were associated with snakes. Well, who's the bad guy in the garden? The snake. Yeah. Um, Asherah was seen both as a goddess and the, the tree. They worshipped her in nature. So you've got this tree of knowledge um, in there. Yeah. And all yeah. of these things that happen to put down women. And then you get, when the Catholic Church forms, you have St. Augustine, which really creates this whole idea of original sin. Because if you look in the Jewish tradition, that, you know, that, that whole concept isn't there. And then he places it on the reason there's original sin is carnal lust. And carnal lust in women is paramount. So it's women's fault. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you even exacerbate that story in the first few centuries of, of Christianity. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it leads to inequality today. I, I often wonder, I often wonder if somebody would do a blind psychological study on women who were raised in a very fundamentalist evangelical household who still believe in that today, whether they could independently vote for a woman president. Have they been so indoctrinated that the man's in charge, listen to the man, don't speak up in church, all of those things, that it would be anathema for them to vote. And they could do some kind of a study where they weren't asking them directly. It could be you know, more subtle with a control group and all of that. But um, you know, we are who we were raised as. Uh, even as an atheist, I sometimes lay my head down on my pillow and start going, now I lay me down to sleep. <laughs> you know, the prayer I learned when I was five years old. Yeah. Uh, you just, it, it's a habit and it becomes so ingrained. That's how you, that's how you look at things. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think I, I wish somebody would take that up and, and do, do a study on that, but we'll see. Yeah. See what the, well, then, um. It's a different country, obviously, but in the UK, they now had two prime ministers who are women, and they're both in the conservative party, mm-hmm. which is, so maybe maybe that's the issue. Maybe if uh, Hillary had said, hey, listen, this is all going to be about being a Christian, my campaign, and yeah. maybe she could have catered uh, to the, well, then she would have lost other women, but, <laughs> yeah, you know, maybe it's, this is the question, is that maybe they are willing, but what? We'll put them over the that line of willingness. What has to be said from the candidate? It'd be very interesting to find out. Well, I'm sure pundits are going to be talking about our election for decades to come. I was absolutely flabbergasted with the results because everybody was predicting a Clinton win. Yeah. And I remember early on watching the, the telecast when they were starting to talk about Trump's numbers. And I said, what are you doing about that for? And then, <laughs> you know, an hour later, two hours later, they were predicting his win. And I think a lot of people were just... Are amazed yeah. um, that that happened, and it's going to be a tough four years, I think. 
I think it's, wow. and my, my key issue is rights of women, reproductive rights, and we're, we're going to have to fight to, to keep them. Yeah, and I think that's good. I think more people should follow that kind of example that they know. You know exactly what your priorities are. I think right now a lot of people are still in the haze of being dumbfounded, and they're a bit confused. Get, yes, get focused on what's really important to you, and, and, and it'll help you move forward. Yeah, and if there are other women out there who are listening who are atheists, speak up. I mean, when I started watching those YouTube debates, they're all men. There were like a couple women. Um, and when you do the 100 best books on Amazon, six of them are written by women, you know, and that's that's one of the things that spurred me forward was to have more of a female voice. Um, sorry about that. That's all right. That's a nice tune. <laughs> uh, it is. Um, I should have put that on, on mute there. Don't worry. I forget, um, I forget about it all the time. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, we need we need more women's voices out there. Uh, because uh, they talk about different things, it resonates differently. Um, so I would, you know, really in- encourage more women to be active. I'm working yeah. on it, book two, and book two is going to be a compilation of about 15 to 20 essays by uh, women authors who are atheists. People like Abby Hafer, I mentioned, Valerie Tirico, uh, Margaret Downey, who started the Free Thought Society. Uh, nice. Candace Forum, who's written the uh, Ebony Exodus Project, and it's going to be out, um, more than just Judeo-Christianity. Um, Aruna Path, who wrote um, Unworthy Creature about growing up in India and, you know, as a teenager, seeing a child, a girl burned to death. And of course, nobody called the police because it was an honor killing. Um, and the work she's done in Canada um, is, is just amazing to help the Southeast Asian community. Um, on domestic violence and, and those type of issues. And I haven't come up with a title yet, but I want it to be the, if you can read this entire book as a woman and still be religious, I'll give up on you. <laughs> you know, it's like, these are all these arguments, and if you read the whole thing, okay, well, you're not the target, but we need to have, we need to have more things like that. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited about the authors I put together for the second book. It'll probably be a year before it's out, but, um, yeah, your work sounds really good. I like it. Um, what I, what I read so far, I've, I found really interesting. So I'll try and keep, uh, my brain active for, uh, when your next one's coming out. Okay, great. Well, I'll be, you know, I have my spreadsheet, so I'll start with the purples, the people who already had me on and call you back. <laughs> and, well, one of the things that we should, you know, I'd like to say before we end our talk is that a lot of people in our atheist community it, you come from a non-religious background. It's not, I don't know if it's the majority or whatever, but there are a lot of them. And I think sometimes it's easy for them to not understand the context of when people are, are talking about their exodus from religion. Mm-hmm. Um, it's worth, even if you didn't have to go through it, I mean, if you, I don't think I need to sell it uh, to people who uh, have gone through it like me like i recognize the value of this book right away Mm -hmm. but if you haven't gone through it that doesn't mean it isn't worth listening to these experiences and gaining some insight yeah and i think it makes you um more empathetic um and maybe giving some examples when you talk to people and you know for men listening to your video uh your podcast hey do you know a woman who's maybe on the edge there who's thinking about leaving religion buy the book and give it as a gift um so they have some help and some models to be able to say, okay, I'm on the right path. Yeah. I get it. And helping um, understanding other people is the is the best way to learning how to help them. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, uh, you know, I'm thank you for being on the show. Uh, oh, it was when, delightful. I had a great time. <laughs> again, I'm sorry it took a while from getting back to you. It was just the holidays. No worries. Uh, my my daughter was over for a week, and I love her, but uh, she is nonstop firecracker. So I basically was spending my whole time chasing her around and making sure. <laughs> I understand completely. Um, and when your other, when you have your other book come out uh, or anything else, you know, give me a message and we'll have you back on. Super. Thank you so much. I really appreciated it. Karen Garst. She blogs at faithlessfeminist.com. She's the author of Women Beyond Belief, Discovering Life Without Religion. And this is your golden lasso. Beside being made of an indestructible material, it also carries with it the power to compel people to tell the truth. Use it well and with compassion.